Welcome to Pennsylvania in Focus, powered by the Center Square and a production of America's Talking Network. I'm Kristen Smith, Pennsylvania news editor editor at the Center Square Newswire Service. To support fine podcasts like this one, click the link in the show description. You can find all of the Center Square's great podcasts at americastalking.com. You can also link to the Center Square podcast through the podcast drop-down menu at thecentersquare.com. We are recording on Friday, January 20th, 2023. With me today is Anthony Hennen, our reporter for the Center Square based in Philadelphia. Good morning, Anthony. It's been a week, hasn't it? It has been a week, Kristen. Good to see you. (laughs) Good to see you, too. So we will get to the the obvious news of this week. On Tuesday, the Center Square was at the Capitol to watch Governor Josh Shapiro swear the oath of office, after which he gave a reverent speech about his commitment to leading all Pennsylvanias, whether or not they voted for him, into brighter days ahead. The optimism was palpable even among GOP lawmakers who had struggled to repair bipartisanship with former Governor Tom Wolf's administration in recent years. The two factions seem so far apart on every major issue that compromise on our biggest problems felt at times impossible. But now the tenor has certainly changed, especially when it comes to energy policy. As you covered for us this week on thecentersquare.com, Anthony, why don't you tell us more about what's happening there? Yeah, so I think think it's interesting when we're looking at Pennsylvania politics right now, where there seems to be uh, a good dose of optimism or at least um, good feeling when you're looking toward the governor's mansion and more of uh, the opposite when you're looking at the legislature. Um, So, you know, I think it's good to start on a high note. Why not? Um, What's fun about this, what's interesting is, you know, we're looking at uh, as Governor Shapiro comes in, you know, he's he's appointing Republicans and Democrats to state positions. um, And on the campaign trail, one thing that left that was left a bit more ambiguous or unclear was uh, his energy policy. Um, You know, his Shapiro spent a good amount of time talking about looking toward uh, investing in uh, making good energy investments, recognizing that energy is a huge industry in Pennsylvania. Um, But what really stood out here was uh, Tom Wolf, uh, the previous governor, was much more uh, much more focused on kind of tamping down uh, natural gas or adding adding a bit more uh, disincentives to fossil fuels. His great push was a regional greenhouse gas initiative. Um, which is basically a consortium of different states joining in and adding in, um, adding in carbon taxes, essentially of putting a putting a market for certain levels of pollution, and then uh, energy producers would have to uh, buy uh, allowances to be able to emit carbon. Um, so while Wolf was big on this, trying to make this happen, and of course uh, Republicans in the General Assembly were much more against this. Uh, Shapiro was more ambiguous. Uh, Shapiro talked about how, you know, he was, he was a little more cautious about this. He had this ambivalent attitude toward it. Um, so there, there's some hope here among Republicans that they can work with Shapiro on this and avoid entering Reggie and really, um, investing in Pennsylvania as a uh, energy powerhouse. Um, uh, Senator Gene Yaw, who chairs the Senate Environmental Resources and Energy Committee, Put out a statement this week uh, saying he looks forward to working with the governor and hopes that he'll, uh, that Shapiro will be a re- reliable partner 
in the effort to balance our environmental responsibilities with our energy needs, as y'all put it. Um, so it, it, it's interesting. There, there's some hope here that, uh, you know, granted, uh, Shapiro has not been shy to uh, endorse um, investments in clean energy and zero carbon technologies. Um, but at the same time, he's pledged to be an all of the above energy governor. Um, so it seems like there, there's some hope here, at least, you know, there's going to be divide between Republicans and Democrats on a lot of other uh, issues. But at least with energy, uh, Shapiro seems like he's much more pragmatic uh, compared to Wolf, or at least his rhetoric is so far. And it seems like uh, a lot of Republicans are taking him at his word there. And from my perspective, I, I, I agree. There's a lot of optimism. And I would say that that hope from Republicans has really developed and evolved over time. As you mentioned, Wolf was really a champion of Reggie. And it's a different ball game compared to the other states that are in it. I mean, you're looking at Maryland, New Jersey, the Northeastern states, and they have very different economies. Energy is a different thing up there. And so our our entrance into Reggie would have been, I hesitate to use the word unprecedented, but it would have been, it's different from what our neighbors are, are dealing with. And so Republicans and the natural gas industry, which in Pennsylvania is pretty large, were rightfully, in my perspective, rightfully concerned about what this would mean for our economy. And Wolf, Wolf was very committed to the to the idea of lowering greenhouse gas emissions, hitting these very ambitious uh, carbon neutral targets. And I think that they really struggled to find middle ground there. And in fact, even preceding the issues of the pandemic that really kind of caused this chasm between Wolf and the legislature, uh, Reggie was a really, it was a turning point, I would think, in the souring of their relationship. It happened in late 2019. And the key point about Reggie, which is always kind of stuck in their craw, was that instead of getting a bill passed through the legislature, as was done in the 11 other states with the exception of New York, but it still kind of happened in New York, but I won't get into it. But um, instead of getting General Assembly approval, he used it, he went through executive order. And as we've discussed in weeks past, uh, Wolf's preference for doing things by executive order uh, raised constitutional concerns, particularly in the case of Reggie, because it would have represented in their minds what they call a carbon tax. Uh, because energy producers, they would have had to pay for these credits. The cost of that credit would have ultimately been passed down to ratepayers. And because of economic forces, the amount of money that the state thought that they would get from Reggie uh, kept going up and up and up. And eventually it was nearly quadruple the amount that they had originally estimated when they supported joining Reggie. And as you're aware, electricity costs are they're through the roof and the price of energy affects, it touches everything in our economy. So as time went on and the pandemic happened and, and that that relationship between the, the branches broke down, Reggie just became this this really contentious debate. So that's a very long way of saying that this renewed hope, particularly from someone like Gene Yaw, who chairs the Environmental Resources and Energy Committee, this renewed hope, this sense of bipartisanship, this idea that they can come together, it is new. And it is, I think a lot of people would say, refreshing after the last few years. Shapiro has positioned himself as someone who's going to have a more moderate uh, opinion on this. And in fact, 
it, on the campaign trail. He would reportedly told the trade unions that he didn't support Reggie. And even as attorney general, he raised concerns about it. He didn't stop the regulatory process from happening at that time, but he did express concerns. How quickly will he act on this? We, you know, it, it remains to be seen. He's in the very early days of his administration and Reggie's tied up in the courts. We don't know what's going to happen there yet, but it seems like all in all the leaders and the people who are, who are involved with this, even, you know, the, the trade associations and the, and the industry partners, even they are expressing new hope under this administration. They think that there's a path path ahead. So that, that optimism is, like I said, very palpable. Um, And I think that so far Shapiro has really, kept up with his promise to represent everybody. This is, like I said, energy, jobs, this is a big issue. And in and speaking of jobs, he actually took his first executive action uh, yesterday on his first full official day in office. And I know you were, you covered that for us. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that executive action was? Yeah. So uh, th- this is something that's not necessarily unprecedented, um, but I think it was a uh, very clear symbol for uh, this being his first executive order. Um, was to remove the college degree requirement from many state jobs. Um, I, I think when they looked it over, um, they, they estimated it'd be about uh, 65,000 positions. Now, um, rather than requiring that applicants have a degree, um, it's much more focused on um, skills and experience. Uh, so this, this is, uh, I believe they estimate something like 92% of state jobs now uh, will not require a college degree. Obviously, uh, that can help in the application process, you know, it can help show that you specialize in a field or whatever else. Um, but this is sort of removing um, some economic barriers for people and making sure that we're not uh, that the state is not um, unintentionally uh, eliminating someone from a job that they would be fit for. Uh, Pennsylvania is not the first state to do this. Um, Maryland did this last year, as well as Utah. Um, and this is kind of becoming more of a trend. Um, we've seen it talked about in a number of uh, right-wing spaces, but also, you know, it, it's something that appeals to Democrats as well. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's I, I think, a good sign of this. It's not only removing that requirement, um, but the state actually built out a new uh, website to show uh, which uh, job offerings from state agencies are available and don't require a college degree. Uh, so it makes it a little easier to kind of search search around for uh, for a job. And there's many, many uh, state positions uh, that remain open and need to be filled. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this seems like a fairly positive uh, step where when you look at a lot of uh, private sector jobs, um, you know, it's roughly 35% require a college degree. But state government, local government, it's more like 63%, 61%. Um, so this is kind of bringing things in line and trying to make sure that uh, you know, a lot of these state jobs are not eliminating people who would be perfectly fit and competent to uh, to work for the government. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see if I can shift a lot of things, but it, it is a good sign. Where when you look at Pennsylvania, it's a state where its labor force participation rate has been declining, and this could be uh, you know at least one small thing to help reverse that. Yeah, I think you used the word pragmatic before, and I I see this as an example of that. It's a a really interesting first step that he took. I don't see, I didn't see as of today, any criticism. I, you know, it, it seems like something that would get bipartisan support. And, you know, 
pulling back from a really broad policy view and putting in the into the context of this larger conversation this the country is having around college affordability the the you know the value on return for a college degree uh you know i can say you know from anecdotal experience the salary of a state job is not commensurate to the cost of the degree that it requires and so i believe that this is a really useful step and i you know i really liked the way that it was described as skills-based um, hiring because, as we all know, schooling isn't the end-all, be-all of whether or not you can do a job. Experience is, in some ways, invaluable. And so this move on his part seems to really strike a, a, a middle ground between recognizing that there are people who are struggling, who for whatever reason couldn't afford college, didn't think it was worth it, just didn't have access. There, There's a myriad of reasons why they may not be able to get that degree, but they could be entirely capable of the job. We talk about things like soft skills when hiring, things that you can't teach people that about their ability to to speak with the public, to relate to customers, to be a good team player, their interpersonal skills, all of that stuff goes into a good employee and one eventual leaders. And I think you know, you always hear the discussion about, I mean, this is a little bit far afield, but I see way too many think pieces about how Homer Simpson would be on public assistance today because there was no way that you could afford his lifestyle because uh, someone without a college degree just could not get a job like that. That's a very, you know, simplistic example, but it, it is the truth. With a college degree or without a college degree, you are limited, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the potential. So it it is a very interesting first step. And I think that of all the executive actions I've seen in the last few years, it's a really practical one that people can really understand what it means and, it, and it'll begin making a difference now. And again, after years of these executive actions doing nothing but angering Republicans and angering the General Assembly, this seems to be another another area where they can find compromise on. It really seems to strike a balance between Republican priorities on creating jobs and Democrats' priorities on lifting people out of poverty and giving them equal footing and a chance. And so while Shapiro seems to be getting right to work, we are still, the legislature's kind of in a free fall to stand still, however you want to say it. We've, the centersquare.com has reported on this in various ways, but this week, the Senate departed from Harrisburg for the next five weeks. They're not going to reconvene until February 27th. This is a stark departure from their original schedule, which had them in every week up until the budget address in the beginning of March. They were going to do their budget hearings shortly after that. I mean, they were in the majority of the winter and spring, and now all of a sudden they've just, you know, decided to leave. They'll come back. The main reason that they said this, that they were doing this is because of the rather unprecedented situation happening in the House where they don't have any operating rules. Um, and without those rules, you can't make committee assignments. You can't vote on bills. There's no work that can be done. And it's kind of, you know, from your experience, Anthony, do you think that this situation is unprecedented? Like, what what is your sense of how this might shake out? Uh, well, my uh, my personal experience in Pennsylvania has been about a year. So for me, it's very unprecedented. Um, I, I think it's a good, uh, it's, it's a good example, if not a, uh, you know, a productive or fulfilling one of just how difficult, uh, the next session will be, um, simply because the majority that Democrats will hold is just so narrow, um, 
and it's it's it, the the margins are so thin to lose anyone on um you know on the one hand uh you know what this could mean is that rather than focusing on these sorts of uh of check the boxes legislation that lawmakers might use on the campaign trail that have no uh no chance of actually passing into a law um this could sort of force them into accepting a more narrow um agenda of something that's maybe more moderate that can actually pass on these narrow margins. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I, I think this is I, what what really sticks out to me here is uh, you know the the unworkability that we're seeing in the House is spreading to affect the Senate, um, where you know the Senate won't you know they can do their side, and we've seen them um, approve some bills out of committee already. Um, but it's really showing that if the House can't get itself in order, then both chambers come to a halt. Um, and, you know, maybe we could see some action from Shapiro and his administration of trying to broker some kind of deal to make something work. Uh, but this this is going to be a rocky road. Um, I, I think this will make the appropriations hearings and the, and the budget uh, scuffle much more difficult than last year, um, even though last year it was a uh, Republican uh, Republican legislature with the Democratic governor. Um, but I think this is this is going to be messy. And uh, I think a lot of this is going to be s- sort of things worked out informally or in the back, back room out of the, uh, the public eye. Uh, but uh, I, I would not want to be someone who has to predict this or have their job focused on any sort of assurances um, coming up from the legislature and what the legislature will do. Uh, I think even when we're looking to February to the special elections coming up out around Allegheny County, um, that should give Democrats um, a solid majority. Uh, but even even with that, even avoiding you know issues and complications that have come up from Mark Rossi's uh, rise to the speakership, um, I think even with those advantages that come after the election, it's still going to be rocky and it's still going to be very difficult to uh, to get a lot of bills through and to just do the usual. Uh, usual legislative uh, responsibilities that uh, we've seen in the past. So I'm, I'm not sure how this will shake out, what sort of uh, what sort of compromise they'll be able to find. Uh, but until they do, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of these, you know, unprecedented, unanticipated um, surprise turns. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be messy and uh, we'll see how much uh, voters can tolerate from it. You're right to be hesitant to try to predict where this will go. It, As someone who's been covering state government in many different ways for at least a decade, the situation is unprecedented in its particular uh, details at the moment. It's not the first time we've had a Democratic speaker and a nearly majority Republican House. It's not, you know, that last situation back in, you know, the late aughts, uh, was before my time. However, I will say this kind of horse trading, this back and forth, this is something you generally see around budget season. And again, it's something that it's not over until it's over. And while right now it appears that the House is in standstill with no end in sight, you know, they could walk out of a meeting today and decide and call the House back tomorrow if they wanted to and get things done. It's not unheard of. uh, But it seems that you know, stranger things have happened. Let's just say, you know, it's just an, from the taxpayer perspective, it, it is a nice reminder that our legislature is one of the highest paid in the country. And they recently just got a cost of living adjustment that has pushed their salaries into six figures. So it's a little bit, 
I think it can be, from my perspective, I think it can, can be frustrating to see them fall apart, you know, so to speak, on operating rules and things like that, that haven't really been a sticking point in the recent past. You'd kind of like them to get their act together. And, and the Senate's departure, I see it as ominous. Uh, five weeks doesn't really say to me, this is a vote of confidence that the House is going to get their act together. So, you know, it, we'll have to see how it shakes up. But, uh, you know, given their standstill, all of the top legislative priorities that they've had are just kind of, they're gone. Like I said before, a full calendar is now empty. And you got to wonder what priorities are going to suffer as a result. I think the biggest top of mind are the constitutional amendments that have a statutory deadline. Actually, looking into it, it seems like it's the end of January, early February. So if the Senate doesn't come back till February 27th, it's my understanding that we'll miss the deadline on those. And and that has massive repercussions, as we've reported on the past. So it's... I think it's probably frustrating for everyone involved. And you were kind of getting to this point uh, in your comments, but it's hard to take. Usually when you see uh, a legislature this divided, sometimes you can have an optimistic view of that and believe that, well, we're going to really get policy that not everyone, you know, no one's going to be happy with it, but that's probably the best outcome for the people of Pennsylvania. Um, But given what's on the line this time around, it's hard to take that view. And it's hard not to feel like politics are weighing down the entire situation when they don't need to be. But that's just my personal view on it, my take from watching these things unfold over the last decade. Uh, So hopefully, you know, we're all wrong, and they get things together, and they're back next week. And they can, they can, you know, move forward on these issues that are really important to the taxpayers. And it looks like that's about all the time that we're going to have for this week. Thank you, Anthony, for joining me and sharing your insights. Uh, We encourage everyone to find news that matters for taxpayers of Pennsylvania at thecentersquare.com. And to support fine podcasts like this one, please donate. You can click the link in the show description. This has been the Pennsylvanian Focus Podcast, part of America's Talking Network. Find all of the Center Square's podcasts at americastalking.com. I'm Kristen Smith, and I'll be back with Anthony Hennon next week to discuss our top stories for you, the taxpayers. 